It's Daily Thunder, the truth of Jesus Christ dished out live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado with a bit of manly grit and gusto. Find out more at live.ellerslie.com. Now, here's Nathan Johnson. I've just been working through a really neat meditation in my own personal life. I just want to bring you guys in on it. Uh, It's in Mark chapter 5, if you have your Bibles. Uh, but as you start to get in the flow of Mark, uh, Mark is a very fast-paced gospel. Mark is a, uh, this happened, then this happened, then this happened, then suddenly, and then, and then immediately. So he's using that kind of language all throughout the book of Mark. It's kind of like a um, comic book, if you will, in terms of it's just a very fast-paced, uh, where Luke and Matthew take time and kind of develop thoughts. Mark is about rushing, getting to the cross. So giving background, but trying to get you to the cross as quick as possible. <clears throat> it's interesting that as you are flowing, the, flowing in the ministry of Jesus, uh, you have the start of the ministry at the very beginning of Mark. Uh, Mark kind of cuts off the birth stories. He kind of just jumps right into the ministry itself. And you have Jesus kind of running in ministry uh, through the first couple of chapters. Now, it's interesting as you get into chapter 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 1 says that he began to teach by the seaside and obviously, speaking about the Sea of Galilee, and it's up on the very tippy top of the north part of the Sea of Galilee. And uh, in fact, I even brought a picture if you want to see a picture. <clears throat> Anyways, up at the very tippy top of the uh, Sea of Galilee. And he's talking to these Jewish uh, believers, or the, uh, these Jewish uh, followers, and uh, he's just explaining this, these phenomenal things. He gets into chapter 4, and he's giving a whole bunch of peril, uh, parables. And at the very end of chapter 4, uh, verse 33... Uh, It says that with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Without a parable, he did not speak to them. But when they were alone, he expounded on all the things to his disciples. In other words, here's Jesus. He's explaining or he's he's expounding these phenomenal biblical truths through a whole bunch of stories, which is kind of neat. Now, as you get into verse 35 of chapter 4, we're we're, we're leading up to chapter 5 here. But as you get into verse 35, it says that same day when evening came, he said to him, let us go to the other side. Speaking about the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it's interesting, and I never knew this until a couple of months ago, but in, a, in the mind of a Jew, again, we have to see this contextually in, in their world, but in the mind of a Jew, you don't go to the other side. There is no reason to, to go to the other side of the lake, which I always thought was fascinating, uh, or at least recently I thought it was fascinating. Uh, the idea here is, in the mind of a Jew, uh, if you think about it, here's these Jewish... Oh, look, there's our picture. Uh, right up at the very top where it says Capernaum, um, that was Jesus' headquarters for the bulk of his ministry years uh, in the north. So that's where Peter was from. His mother-in-law was there. She was sick, and obviously Jesus healed her. And then he kind of spent his ministry time up there in Capernaum. <clears throat> it's interesting that that north part, that northwestern part of the Sea of Galilee, is the best fishing in all of the Sea of Galilee. Reason being is... Uh, the, the Jordan River is flowing from the top there, comes into the Sea of Galilee, and there's a, it kind of breaks into a few, uh, few little streams right as it hits the, hits the lake, and it's, it kind of churns up the water, has the best fishing area, therefore the best fishing grounds, uh, of, that whole, of the whole lake. So as a good Jew who lived on the northwestern portion uh, of the Sea of Galilee, you would go out fishing, but how far would you go out fishing? Well, what I found out in January when I was there was you only go out a couple hundred yards. In other words... In my mind, for whatever reason, I was thinking, oh, you fish the lake, so what do you do? You get in your boat, go to the middle of the lake, and you fish. <laughs> That's not what they did. Uh, they would only go out about 100, 200 yards maybe, and they would fish just along the banks. 
And part of the reason for that is the fact that in the mind of a Jew, water is symbolic of chaos. Going back to uh, Genesis 1.1. In other words, here's the Spirit hovering over the chaos of the waters. And so in the mind of a Jew, the idea of water is it's a, it's a place of fear. It's a place of intimidation. It's a place of chaos. Uh, there's this idea that the waters uh, was the entrance into the abyss. Uh, that kind of an idea. And so, <clears throat> as a good Jew then, if you're going to go fishing, all right, I have to go into the water because that's where the fishing's at. But I don't want to spend a lot of time on the water. Why? Because it's chaotic. It's dangerous. Uh, it's, it's the entrance into the abyss and, and who knows what's down there kind of stuff. And so here they are fishing on the very tippy-top northwest portion of the Sea of Galilee. <clears throat> and here's Jesus. He shows up and he looks at these fishermen who grew up as fishermen and he says, hey, Let's go to the other side of the lake in the middle of the night, <laughs> which would be intimidating. So what he's actually doing, and if you can see this on the picture, he's on the northwest portion uh, near Capernaum, and he's looking to go to the other side right down to the eastern shore there where it says Hippos. Now, this is intriguing because, uh, again, you have to understand the geography a little bit. Uh, on the east shore where it says Tiberius, uh, Tiberius was a place uh, it was a Roman Jewish area of the Sea of Galilee. In other words, uh, when Herod the Great died and his three sons took over the, the kingdom, they split it up, uh, one of his sons came up and built uh, a great little Roman area, had a bunch of hot springs. It was kind of like the uh, day spa area of the Sea of Galilee. It was very delightful. And uh, that was Tiberius. So it, was, it, was, it had a lot of Roman influence, but there were still Jews there. And so it was basically the Jews who become Hellenized in the Roman culture. So you have this kind of hybrid of, I'm a Jew, but I like Roman culture, so I'm participating in Roman culture, that kind of a thing happening on that eastern shore near Tiberias. Up north, on that north area, that's where all the good, sturdy Jews are from. Hey, we don't want to get involved in the culture of the Romans. Uh, here, here we are. We just, hey, we are good Jews. We're going to worship God, that kind of thing. So if you're a good Jew, you're up on that northern part, portion, up near uh, Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida and all that stuff. But then on the eastern shore is what we used to, or what used to be called the Decapolis. And it was these 10 Roman cities that encamped around that area, Hippos being one of those. And it was purely Roman. It was pagan. So think about this. Here is Jesus, this good Jew, looking at a group of Jews saying, hey, let's leave our Jewish area and let's go to the place where there's all the pagans. And again, this, in the mind of a Jew, this is, we don't go to pagans. Uh, we, don't, we, don't, we don't associate with them. Hey, we, we keep ourselves apart from them. Why? God chose us. That they, hey, they, hey God, God can destroy them. They can do whatever. But hey, we are good Jews. We don't fellowship with the Romans. And here is Jesus wanting to take them from the safety of the northern area into this scary place across the scary lake to this pagan town. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus shows up. is right on the shore there where Hippos is at, kind of at the base of Hippos. And here he's at the base of Hippos, this big Roman city. <clears throat> and it says in chapter 5, uh, if you want to follow along, it says, They went to the other side of the sea. Oh, sorry, right before that point. Almost missed it. At the very end of chapter 4, as they're coming across this lake in the middle of the night, uh, the wind picks up and there's this huge storm. Now, in the Sea of Galilee, there's a lot of great storms being that there's mountains on both sides. So the wind comes across. Hit, uh, drops down off these mountains, hits the lake, and it turns up the water. So the Sea of Galilee has these big storms all the time. So here they are in the middle of the lake, 
And this great wind comes up, and the waves are splashing in the boat, verse 37. And verse 38, Jesus uh, was in the stern asleep on a pillow, which I just think is hilarious, because how on earth is he going to sleep in the middle of all that? And they wake him up saying, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? And he rose, and he rebuked the wind. Really, the idea is he silenced the chaos. And he said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And, of course, he looks at the disciples and says, Hey, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? So think about this. And Jesus shows his power and authority over the physical realm by speaking into this physical chaos, the sea, and causing peace and tranquility. Now, hold on to that because it becomes important here in this next section in chapter 5. So chapter 5, then, they, they reach the other side, and presumably it's now morning. It says in verse 2 that when they came out of the boat, immediately a man with an unclean spirit came out of the tombs and met him. <laughs> Can't you imagine? I just, this is, think about it from a Jewish perspective. Here you are, a good Jew. You've never gone across to the other side of the lake. And that's the presumption. Every, all, all the scholars tell us the, the, the likelihood of them ever going to the other side of the lake is so minuscule. In other words, it doesn't happen. Why? Because the, the water is chaos. It's symbolic of chaos. And there's no reason to go to the other side of the lake. It's all Roman and pagan. So why would I even want to go there in the first place? I wouldn't. So here's Jesus saying, hey, let's go to the other side. And they're like, all right. And in the middle of the night, there's this huge chaos and the storms and all this kind of stuff, which obviously must have been very fearful. Jesus settles that thing. And could you imagine the shock you'd be in as a, here's this good Jew. You grew up, you know, you grew up fishing and you, and you know the water and you know the chaos of the water. And here's a man who just calmed and stilled the waters. And my guess is their mouths are hanging open and they, they land on the shore. And the moment they get out of the boat, here's a man who comes out from these hills. And there's all these caves in those hills. He comes out and he's screaming at him. So it's not just there's a man screaming. He is a pagan man screaming at him. And it says, as you, as you follow this along, uh, verse 3, he lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him, not even with chains. Because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he had pulled the chains apart and broken the shackles to pieces, and no one could, could subdue him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus off, he ran and knelt before him. And he cried out with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, the Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Could you imagine what that must have been like for the disciples? Uh, here this, here's this man, probably not in much clothing, running and screaming with all these cut marks, right, coming out and rushing toward them. So they're in a place they're not used to. They've never been here before. Uh, they're, they've already felt the chaos of the lake. Here they are in the pagan culture, in the middle of the chaos of the, of the pagan culture, and here's this demon-possessed man running towards you, screaming with cuts on them. I would get back in the boat. I mean, I would leave. I just... Which is obviously the, the attitude. It seems like there's the undercurrent of that uh, even in the passage with the disciples. Jesus looks at the man and he says, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And then he asked, asked him, Hey, what is your name? And the man said, My name is Legion, for we are many. Uh, Legion, by the way, does not mean like, Oh, there's like five of us. We're talking hundreds, if not thousands, of demons in this one man. Which is just mind-boggling. Uh, verse 10, <clears throat> and this man begged Jesus repeatedly not to send him away out of the country. Now, there was a great herd of swine feeding near the mountains. By the way, that would have been right, 
where Hippos is at. Okay, so the swine would probably be up on the mountain of Hippos, uh, where the city's at. And it says, all the demons pleaded with him, verse 12, asking, send us to the swine so that we may enter them. So think about this. <clears throat> here's Jesus. He shows up, and here's one lone man. He has cuts on him. He's been filled with demons. And hey, people have tried to help him, but it's never worked. And he comes rushing out, and Jesus says, hey, who are you? Hey, I'm legion, because there's so many demons in me. And Jesus says, all right, we're setting you free. And the demons are pleading with Jesus, saying, hey, don't, don't just send us to the abyss. Please just don't send us to the abyss. Would you, hey, there's some, there's some pigs over here. Would you send us into the pigs? Now, it's interesting to think that in a Jewish mindset, pigs are unclean animals. Right? So, so hold that in the back of your head. <clears throat> so the, these demons say, hey, send us into these unclean animals. Uh, so that we may enter them. And at verse 13, uh, at once Jesus gave them leave. Then the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine, and the herd, numbered about 2,000, ran wildly down a steep hill into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Fascinating thought. In the mind of, of the Jews, you realize that here are these demons asking not to be sent into the abyss. And yet they went into the swine, and guess where they ended up in the Jewish mind? The abyss, because the water is a sign of the entrance to the, uh, not only chaos, but the entrance into the abyss, which I just think is very fascinating. Uh, verse 14 <clears throat> says that those who fed the swine f uh, fled and reported it in the city and in the country, and people went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw him who had been possessed with the legions of demons sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it befell him who had been possessed with the demons and also concerning the swine. And they began to plead with Jesus to depart out of their region. Isn't it a sad reality that here's, this, here's these group of pagans who look at this phenomenal miracle of this, of this man that they hadn't heard before, Jesus, coming and setting this man they know of free. I mean, he is free. He is clothed, finally, and in his right mind sitting at the feet of Jesus. And the men of this town, Hippos, is so concerned about their livelihood and their economy, the fact that their whole economic system of the town has just been dumped into the sea, that they look at Jesus and say, I don't, we just leave. Because you're causing, you are causing chaos. And yet, what is the very thing Jesus is doing? Removing chaos. And isn't it a beautiful picture of what he just did on the sea as they're heading toward this land is the same thing that Jesus did inside the man. In other words, on the, on the lake, here's all this wind and turmoil and chaos, and Jesus speaks in the midst of this physical chaos, and literally it brings silence and stillness and tranquility to the water. What does he do to the man? The same thing, but spiritually. That he speaks into the chaos of this man, and he removes the, the chaos and brings stillness and peace and tranquility inside the man. And it's amazing how Mark wrote this, that, that here is Jesus, who's not just, he just doesn't have some power, or, okay, maybe he has power over the physical, but maybe he doesn't have power over the spiritual, the supernatural realm stuff. And what Mark says is, no, he has power over both. That just as he can still the waters physically here, he can steal the life here. Isn't that beautiful? I just, oh, that's so encouraging to me. Because there's times in my life where it's physical. Jesus settled the waters. And there's times where it's inside stuff. And Jesus has control and power over all of it. 
And here are these disciples getting a front row seat on this thing. And could you imagine what they must have been thinking when here we are in a place that we shouldn't belong because we're in a pagan city, and we're seeing this man who's full of demons, and he's now set free, and he's sitting in his clothed in his right mind, and he's just, oh, he's hungry. He's, he's, he's at peace. And then you have this whole town that comes out and just says, that's great, I'm glad you stayed Bob, but uh, would you leave? Because you are causing chaos for us. And I love the divisiveness of Jesus. Because in the midst of him creating peace and tranquility, from one man it's complete peace and tranquility. From another side of perspective, it's chaos. Sounds like what he does nowadays, doesn't it? It's like he brings in hope and peace and restoration and freedom in someone's life. And yet because of that, it seems like the people around him are experiencing chaos because this person has been, is living in freedom and peace. Just interesting. So here's this whole region of people, and they ask him to leave. So what does Jesus do? Well, he enters the boat, <clears throat> and he who, who was possessed with the demons prayed that he might be with him. Jesus, can I come with you? Which is a very legitimate request. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says in verse 19, it says that Jesus did not let him. What? All up to this point, Jesus is calling disciples. Hey, come follow me. Hey, why don't you leave everything? Why don't you come with me? And they're, they're obviously the great stories of that, of people who followed. And then, of course, we have stories of people who said, nah, I'm a little too busy. Here's a man who's like, Jesus, can I please come with you? Isn't it interesting that in a lot of the miracles that Jesus did, the moment he did the miracle, he looks at, looks at the person and says, don't tell anybody. Just keep it quiet. It's not, it's not ready. It's not time yet. Listen to what Jesus tells this man, though. He says in verse 19, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has compassion on you. That is such an odd switch to me. Why would Jesus look at this man and say, go tell everybody, just go crazy. And yet he looks at all these other people who had phenomenal miracles and says, keep it quiet. Isn't that fascinating? And you can say, well, why is that? Well, it seems like part of the reason is the region he is in. That his ministry is to the Jews, which is in the northern, north, northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Hey, this is the eastern shore. These are all the pagans. These are the Romans. And it almost seems like because of that, he just says, why don't you just go and share it? Just go tell all these Roman pagan people all that God has done for you. And it says, verse 20, so this man departed and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, those ten cities on the eastern shore, what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone was amazed. And of course we find out in verse 21 that Jesus had crossed back over to that northern west portion of the Sea of Galilee. Just a couple observations. Isn't it interesting that Jesus takes his disciples out of their comfort zone across a place of chaos for one man? I mean, if you stood back, you would say, that wasn't a lot of good ministry, Jesus. I mean, do you know how much time and resource we wasted in trying to get over to the other side of the lake? And yet, we did not win the great multitudes. In fact, the, the multitudes hated us. They told us to leave. Well, what was, the, what was the result of that ministry? Just one person. It was just one. And yet, isn't it beautiful that in the mind of God, that one is significant. The one man is important. And God is willing to literally go across the place of chaos to reach the one. That's encouraging. I think it's so encouraging. Because we have been the one. 
that God has been willing to go across the chaos to reach, to bring salvation to. Now, it's interesting, as you continue the story along, <clears throat> here's Jesus. He's continuing his ministry up in that northern part. He, he feeds the 5,000 up near Capernaum. <clears throat> and what you have at the end of chapter 7, uh, at the end of chapter 7, Jesus goes to the land of Tyre and Sidon, which is on the Mediterranean coast. And as you leave chapter 7 and you enter into chapter 8, Jesus is leaving the area of Tyre and Sidon, and he's making his way back to the Sea of Galilee, but he does so in a weird loop, because the Mediterranean Sea, you understand, is over on this side. Like, it's like way over here. It's like, it's like where that screen's at. And so when Jesus is coming, he's coming to the Sea of Galilee, but he comes up and around and th through the area of Decapolis, is what the end of chapter 7 tells us. So he's coming not just straight through to where he would have been in Capernaum. He comes up and then around and comes back to this area, the Decapolis. Now, it's intriguing <clears throat> excuse me, that he's back in the land of the pagans. And uh, he's in this area at the end of chapter 7, and he heals a deaf and mute man uh, in this area. And there's this stirring that begins to take place. And we find in chapter, Mark chapter 8, verse 1, it says that in those days, the crowds becoming very great with nothing to eat. Jesus called the disciples to him and said, so think about this. He's in the area of the Decapolis, and the crowds are very great. So he's back in this area of the pagans, and there's this huge swelling of people. Well, I thought the last time he was there, they told him to leave. Yes. What changed? Apparently, they're now ready for him. Why would they have been ready for him? It seems the indication in Scripture is that, well, there was this one man that Jesus went across the lake for in this seemingly insignificant ministry opportunity and then leaves right after this man is healed and the man goes off into the Decapolis and starts to share and here they are in just amazement and wonder of all the great things that God has done. And now, sometime later, Jesus returns to that area and they all go, oh, you're that man. I'm ready for you. Hey, hey would you teach us? Hey, would you share some stuff with us? And they're hungry. They're thirsting for truth and righteousness. Well, what shifted? Apparently, one man told him stuff. Isn't that an interesting thought? And it says that <clears throat> in the chapter 8, that Jesus, looking at the disciples, says, Man, I have compassion on this crowd because they've been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. Talk about a change in attitude from the time he was there just previously. And he says, if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint on the way, for some of them have come from afar. So, of course, the disciples say, well, <laughs> where, not, where on earth are we going to get a bread? <clears throat> and Jesus says, well, you feed them. How many loaves do you have? And they say, well, we have seven. And we're not talking like, you know, massive loaves of bread. Like, we have seven. Just enough for Peter. I mean, it's not like that. It's like we're talking like little rolls, right? Little, little loaves of bread. And uh, <clears throat> he says, okay, that's enough. And he feeds 4,000 plus uh, women and children. So he feeds 4,000 men plus women and children. Which, you know, what, what are we talking? At least 10,000 people? And who is he feeding? Pagans. Romans. Which is such a shift in my mind. Because all growing up, for whatever reason, I'd always heard when Jesus fed the 5,000 and when Jesus fed the 4,000, I presumed it was the same group. Yeah, it was just good Jews. They were hungry. Jews are always hungry, right? Disciples are always hungry. <laughs> I'm always hungry. Uh, but the 5,000 and the 4,000 are not the same group. 
Jesus feeds the 5,000 up there near Capernaum area on the northern west shore of the Sea of Galilee. They're good Jews. But when he feeds the 4,000, where is he at? He's in the Decapolis area on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they are Romans. And why are these Romans so interested? Why are the Romans so intrigued? Why are they, why are they desiring Jesus? Why, why are they listening to him? It seems like because there was this one man. So all that to say this. Do you recognize how far Jesus is willing to go for one? See, so oftentimes I think we look at the one and just say, well, it's just one. Like, how, how significant is one? It's not very significant. That's not true in God's economy. Because you realize it was because of the one that an entire pagan region was willing to hear the, the word of the Lord. They were willing to listen to Jesus. Why? Because of one. So you can't say, well, one is, one, you know, one's not significant. No, one is really critical in the kingdom of God. In fact, so critical that Jesus was willing to go across chaos to come to a place which seemingly insignificant. In fact, it looks like a failure of ministry because the whole region asked him to leave. And yet there's only one man who was rescued. So if God is interested in the one, and yet the one can only change the nations, do you realize what he could do with you? Do, do you realize that there is not a single person that God can't stir and change? So maybe two practical points to, to bring this to, to conclusion. One, <clears throat> do you recognize how far God is willing? So I'll say it this way. Do you recognize how far God has already gone to rescue you? That he has gone across the chaos. He's experienced the chaos himself so that you could be set free. So that all that inner turmoil and chaos that's been happening in your life, which we call sin, can literally be silenced and stilled, and you can literally walk in freedom and peace and triumph. But once that's happened in your life, you realize that you are called to go and share that. Well, what good am I going to do? I'm only one. Yeah, but one can change the nations. Maybe the second thought is, <clears throat> who is the one in your life that God wants you to go to? And it may seem like it's completely insignificant, and it may look like it's a total waste of time, and it may look like it's a waste of resource and energy, but could it be that God is asking you to go across a lake of chaos just to reach one? And if so, who's the one in your life? Who's that one that you've been praying for? Who's that one that you're just, God, God, God has to get a hold of this person? Do you realize that he can he longs, he desires for that. And so I would encourage us as we just move forward that, that we'd be praying for the ones in our life. I mean, pray for the multitudes, but there's something about the ones. Because God is a personal God. He doesn't just deal with us in terms of numbers. He deals with us in terms of relationship. and We have names. Right? We, we are special, we're individual to him. Which is why it's interesting in the book of Revelation it says that he has a name specifically chosen for each of us that nobody else knows. That he, he's intimate with, on such a level with us that he's given us a special name that nobody else knows. See, we don't just have a number that he calls and goes, oh, at least you're here, roll call. That he's personable. not beautiful? I just love that. <clears throat> so I encourage us, let's be praying for the ones in our life that Jesus needs to get a hold of and they're in the, still in the middle of chaos because God is interested in saving those who are in chaos. But let us not forget either the fact that God has rescued us from chaos and set us free from all the torment and junk. And let us also remember that 
It only takes one to literally shift the nations. That's encouraging in these days (laughs) because our nations need it. Isn't Jesus good, though? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the fact that you were willing to go across the lake of chaos. In fact, in the middle of that chaos, you were just sleeping. You were resting. You were calm. You weren't frightened. What an amazing reality. And though the disciples were fearful and trembling, you were just resting. Lord, what would it look like if we had that attitude? That when the world around us seemed to be in utter chaos, we could just lay our head on a pillow and rest. Because we recognize that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who holds the waters in his hand, is in the boat with us. That we don't have to be fearful. Lord, thank you that you are so desirous for the ones and that you were willing to go across the lake to a place that we shouldn't even have been in to reach a man who was so full of demons and chaos and craziness and you were able in your power to set such a man free. Lord, thank you for doing that in our lives. And Lord, the people that we know in our, in our world that are just living in the chaos and the confusion and the just the junk and the sin, Lord, I pray that you would give us a greater burden, that we'd be praying that you would communicate in such a way that just softens their heart and stirs and brings them to a place of repentance. Lord, you are interested in the ones. I love the fact, Jesus, that you use the ones to change the world. We just give you the praise and the glory. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training and the Bravehearted Media Group. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and see it once again gain the stride of the Spirit emboldened and brave. The Daily Thunder video stream can be watched live daily at 8.15 a.m. Mountain Time, Monday through Saturday, and 7.15 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. Please consider booking a stopover at the lovely Ellerslie campus at the foot of the majestic Rocky Mountains for one day, one week, one semester, or for an entire season. We hope to see you someday soon live and in person. Thanks for listening.